Open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 3, if you have a Bible, open it. Um, if not, there's Bibles in the back by the sound booth, and you can um, pick up a Bible. Maybe when we dismiss the kids, just go back there and grab a Bible. I have the verses up on the screen, but uh, it's good to bring your Bible so you know where things are and you can write in it. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Walking through the letter or the epistle of the Apostle Peter, we find ourselves in chapter 3, verse 18. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For Christ also suffered once for sins, that the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. If you're thinking, what is that? Welcome. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. You know we love to expository preach because I don't think many pastors are waking up and going, I think I'll preach on 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 because I have no idea what it says. That's usually not the case. Uh, so we're going to have some fun on this text we've been studying all, all week long. So uh, let's let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Father, we just pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds um, really to see and treasure Jesus. That's, that's the whole of Scripture points to our good God and Savior. He himself said, you know, you search the Scriptures, but you refuse to come to me. So, Lord, we want to come to you. You're the author and, and, and giver of life. And we pray, Lord, that you would get glory, we would get joy, and that your spirit would do a work in our hearts and our lives. And, Father, we would respond in faith to the Word that You have declared to us and among us, Lord. Manifest Yourself. Make Yourself known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids are dismissed. We're in First Peter. This is like a bitter, bittersweet passage for me because it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, verse 18. I just love that passage. And yet, it's right up against a, a passage that's a little bit more difficult and more, uh, yeah, more hard, uh, harder to understand, I should say. In fact, it's, it's so difficult that guys like Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, who was really smart, much smarter than I am, and who had an opinion about everything, sort of like I have, um, said this about verse 19 and 20. He said, a wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in all the New Testament, in, in, the New Te- in the Testaments. So that I don't even know for certain just what Peter means. I cannot understand, I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So that's where we're at this morning. Now we get into this text this morning, particularly verse 19 and 20. Remember that the Bible is... The Word of God, it is inspired of God, it is breathed of God, the Scripture teaches. It is inspired by God and it is profitable. All Scripture is profitable, but not all Scripture is understandable. 
There are some passages of Scripture that are just hard to understand. In fact, in 2 Peter, when we get to that in a couple of, in about a month or two, Peter will go on to say that the Apostle Paul has wrote some things that the Apostle Peter doesn't even understand. That they just, Paul's writing some things that are just hard to understand. That's Peter. Walked with Jesus. Filled with the Spirit. Had difficulty trying to understand some of the writings of Paul. Okay? Uh, so, you know, when you look at some scripture and you look at some of these passages and, and you think, you know what, I know every interpretation of the entire scriptures, don't come in with any Kool-Aid because we're not drinking it. Because, you know, there's some things that are just really, really difficult. So as we get into this passage, just a couple things I'm going to mention up front. Number one, good hermeneutics, which means the art and science of interpreting passages, tells us when there's an obscure passage, something that's very hard to understand, you don't build a whole doctrine on it. You don't, you don't, you don't state your whole life on it. You don't you know, build theses and doctrine and dogma on something that is somewhat obscured. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a place in there that's difficult to understand when he talks about baptizing the dead. Of course, the Mormon church didn't get it right, and now they're baptizing people from 30 or 40 or 50 generations, right? They missed all of Scripture, and they take that one passage and build the doctrine on it. When the Bible is clear, that it doesn't mean that you can baptize for dead people, because the Scripture says very clearly in chapter 9 of Hebrews, it's appointed unto man to die once. And after death, once, he will stand judgment. No baptism for the dead. So that passage must mean something else. So we don't want to build something on it. We want to, secondly, approach this passage carefully and humbly. So you guys are meeting in community groups this week. Um, there's going to be, you know, we're going to be talking about this passage here. Be humble. Okay? Community group leaders, if somebody comes to you and says, I got it, tell them, come and see me. Okay? Because we're not really sure. So we have to approach this passage with humility. We're not going to stand on this passage about the preaching and going in the spirits in prison and, you know, fight over it. It's not that kind of passage. It's not worth the fighting. One of the things we can learn about this passage and some of the things that are clear comes from the context. So we'll, we'll talk about the obscurity of some of it, but we'll talk about some of the clarity in dealing with this passage. Now, we know that this letter was written to a people in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And what was going on in those churches was severe, or at least, yeah, severe persecution. It's going to get worse. The emperor is Nero. They're persecuting Christians. And Christians now are told, according to Jesus, that there's only one Lord and Savior, and that's Him, Jesus. But Emperor Rome, Nero, you were supposed to bow your knee to Him as Lord. And they're like, we're not doing it. So there was persecution going on in the church. And Peter would say that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of, of hardship, in the midst of severe trials, that we must remember always in the forefront of our mind that this place, this earth, this, this world in which we live in is not our home. That the, the, the suffering and the persecution that we will endure is not going to last forever. Why? Peter would say, because God has done a great work providing a great salvation through the person and the work of Jesus. And last week, we moved from the topic of responsibilities, of, of how we're supposed to live because of the salvation, from submission to suffering. Suffering is a theme throughout this letter because they were suffering. 
Last week, if you remember, in chapter 3, verse 15, we said that according to chapter uh, 3, verse 15, that in the midst of suffering we are to what? Look at verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. That's what he says. We're supposed to honor Christ as Lord. That means that Christ is our greatest treasure, our most valuable possession, and that we love Him. And when we do that, and Christ is Lord of our lives, we'll become zealous, he says in verse uh, uh, 13 and 14, we'll become zealous in our efforts and fearless in our hearts to do good. Because that's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about suffering under, under unjust hands of people, being persecuted, but yet responding not with evil for evil, but good for evil. Like Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. Like Jesus. To, to, to suffer well, to honor and to love people in the midst of suffering. So we'll be, if Christ is Lord of our lives and he's, he's our greatest treasure, then we will be zealous, eager in our efforts and fearless in our hearts as we suffer and do good. And then verse 15 and 16, Peter says that we, in this suffering, while we're doing good, give the opportunity to glorify God, to, to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the hope that's within us. So in other words, there's hope. We have hope. It's in Christ. And when people see us suffering and doing good and loving people in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, they'll be like, why aren't you falling apart? What, what, where is this hope that you have? What's going on in your life? Jesus. It's not going to last forever. I worship a, a, a suffering servant who was crucified on my behalf. And it's an opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. Paul will end, uh, excuse me, Peter will end our, last week. If you look at verse 16 and 17 as we concluded last week. He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you are, not if you are, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Alright, so he's saying, look, it's good, it, it's, it's, it's God's will that we, we suffer. I know that's hard to, to grasp. Read the book of Job, you'll understand. But suffering is part of this life as we live our life of faith in Christ. But God not only allows us to suffer, but God's in control. God's sovereign. And the point that Peter's making, as he finished last week, is that God wants his people to live faithfully, to do what is right, even in the midst of an unbelieving, evil, persecuting world. Karen Job, in her commentary, writes this. I, I thought this was a good wrap-up. She writes, The encounter of Christian faith with hostility therefore becomes a test that must be faced by Christians. If a Christian turns away from Christ in order to avoid suffering insult and alienation from unbelieving friends, neighbors, or colleagues, then that person's faith is thereby shown to be lacking. God wills the Christian to suffer in the sense that God wills the Christian to remain faithful even if suffering is the consequence. Now listen to this. This was convicting for me this week. Such a testing situation, such a testing Situation allows Christians to see their faith for what it is or is not. Someone once said Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what they're really made of until they're in hot water. And sometimes what she's saying is when we are persecuted and when we suffer, what's in our heart will come out. 
So we look at this text this morning. Remember, the context is suffering for doing good, like Jesus. We will see that because our, our good God and Savior endured suffering, was victorious through it, victorious through unjust suffering, we can have hope, we can have victory because of Christ. Because of Christ. So, what we'll see is Peter pointing to, first, the substitution of Jesus, the proclamation of Jesus, the salvation of Jesus, and finally, the exaltation of Christ. So, that's where we're going as we look. Look at with me verse for 18. I love verse 18. The substitution. Verse 18, chapter 3. For Christ also suffered once, underline that, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Notice first he writes that Christ had to suffer death how many times? Once. Some of you, like me, have been taught that there needs to be a, a perpetuation sacrifice daily or, or weekly. No such things. Notice he didn't say he continues to die or somehow we have to reinvent his suffering. It was done once and for all. He died once for sins. Now, now family, just listen to these passages I'm going to read and try to soak in the majesty and, and beauty and glory of the Word of God. Listen. Hebrews chapter 9, hear the word of the Lord. Let this soak in. The priests, they go regularly into the first section, perform their ritual duties. That's the holy place where the sacrifice were in the temple. But into the second place, the high priest goes, the holy of holies. He goes but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So there's regular sacrifices, and once a year, every year, once a year, but every year, continually, the priest would go in, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with blood, offer up sacrifices for himself and the sins of the people. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and the more perfect tent, he entered once for all, to the holy places, not by the means of bloods of goats of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. In other words, he didn't offer himself repeatedly as the high priest does, entering the holy place every year with blood but not his own. For then, if that were the case, then Jesus would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin when he comes back, but to save those who eagerly waiting for him. Let that soak in. Christ 
as a foreshadow of the holy of holy, of the priest who would enter into the holy of holies, entered into himself, entered himself in the most sacred place of the holy of holies, dying once for sins, washing us and cleansing us of our sins. When Jesus on the cross, one of the words in which he cried out was, Tetelestai, it is finished. means paid in full. Peter is saying Jesus suffered and died purposely. Jesus died unjustly. If you're taking notes, and Jesus died intentionally. Look what he said. Peter says Jesus suffered and died purposely. For Christ also suffered once for what? For sins. Christ suffered. That's a fact. Christ died. That's the fact. For huge implications for the purpose of our sins. He died, he suffered, fact, he, for the purpose of our sins. You see, in Genesis, way back when we studied Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will die. If you sin, you will die. If you rebel against me, you will die. Paul put it this way, the wages of sin is death. So the penalty for our sin is death. Physical death. God didn't create us to, to go into the ground. He created us to live with Him forever. But because of sin entered the world, we now die. We have the natural death. And there is spiritual death, which means separation from God. That's due to your sin, my sin. And Jesus on the cross suffered a grueling death by crucifixion and died for, to pay for, our sin penalty. Is there anyone here that's not a sinner? Of course. So he died purposely. He also died unjustly. Look what it says. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, which one is Jesus? He's the, un- he's the righteous one. That's right. We are the unrighteous. In fact, Jesus said to his enemies, if there's any sin, tell me what it is. And they're like quiet. His own family could not point out sin. You know you're living righteously when the people that don't like you And the people you live with can't figure anything out or show any sin in your life. Those who know my sin greater are those I live with every day. Right? What you see up here, they see it every day. And they know I'm not spotless. They know I'm the unrighteous one. Right? I mean, just if if you think you're the righteous one, just ask your spouse or a friend. They'll tell you. The reason, listen, the reason... Christ's death is sufficient to pay for our sins is because He was the spotless Lamb of God who takes away sins. He is the one who knew no sin. Right? He is sinless. He could not have died on behalf of His people if He Himself was not perfect. His perfect obedience, therefore, is the basis for the sufficiency of His death for us in our place. I was sharing the gospel with somebody this week who said, when I was talking about sin, they said they, they couldn't remember the last time they sinned. They were thinking back years. I just, I can't remember. And, you know, I kind of chuckled to myself and I thought, you know, I, I know that's not true, but, you know, you know what the problem was? The problem was the individual failed to see the holiness of God. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, he, he comes into the throne room of, of, of the Lord with a train of His robe 
filling the temple and the angels are crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord and the whole world is full of His glory. God's holiness is that He is completely separate from evil. Completely separate from sin. Completely separate from all that is common. Everything in all creation, listen, everything in all creation is infinitely less valuable than Jesus, okay? Than God Himself. C.J. Ryle said, rightly said, that no attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than His holiness. In fact, when Isaiah saw the beauty and majesty and infinite value of God, what did he do? He said, woe is me. I am ruined. I am undone. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So listen, the closer we are to God, the clearer our sinfulness is. In fact, R.C. Sproul talks about the trauma, holiness of God, great book, the trauma of coming face to face with God. And what happens is we have a different standard. So we have a standard of like our neighbor, uh, the guy that works here and the guy that works there and the people we know and oh, we always look better than everybody around us, right? I mean, they're, they're worse than we are. We're, we're a little bit better than everyone. And our standard becomes other sinful people. And with this individual I tried to share with him is if we were to see our deeds, our misdeeds, if we are to see our motives, actions in light of, through the lenses of, perfect beauty, spotless, infinite holiness of God, we would never say, I can't remember my sin. We would say, get a piece of paper, get a lot of paper, and let's just write what I did today. (laughs) My motives are never pure. I'm selfish. I get angry. Look in the eyes of perfection. And we'll see that we're not perfect. He suffered purposely, unjustly. And look, he suffered intentionally that he, Jesus, might bring us to God. Jesus Christ suffered, fact, for the purpose of our sins, unjustly the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might Bring us the purpose of to God the Father. To God. Access. Very similar to Matthew's Gospel when, when the, the temple was torn in two. The, the, the temple um, uh, curtain was torn in two. When did it happen? At His death. When Jesus died on the cross, the Scriptures tell us that the temple from top to bottom, God doing the ripping, tore open into the Holy of Holies. The place that only the high priest can go. That Jesus now has offered Himself once for sin. Now we have access by His death through the death of Jesus into the access presence of God. Into the Holy Holy made possible because of Jesus. And let me tell you folks, my greatest need, your greatest need, is getting into the presence of God. And our greatest enemy is our sin. Sin blocks that. Isaiah 59 says, your iniquity, your sin, have made a separation between you and your God. He's holy, we are not. We are sinful and God wants nothing to do with sin. And what's much more, much more terrifying than suffering for righteous sake, what can happen in this world, is suffering the wrath of God because of our sins 
because of my sins that are not forgiven. Your sins, if they're not forgiven. If you have not trusted Christ, suffering in this world is nothing compared to eternity. But Jesus died for sin. The greatest thing in the world that I have, that I do not have to die for is my own sins because Jesus died for my sins. And here's the intent of Christ's suffering and death. was not to make us good people. That wasn't, that wasn't the primary purpose of His death. It was to break down that wall that formed between me and a holy God because of my sin and God's just wrath. And by Christ's death, the Bible says that the wall was broken down. He took our sin on Himself and our punishment of God's wrath was placed on Jesus. And now He brings us to God. So when we talk about things like justification, of being made right with God, we talk about things like forgiveness, we talk about things like redemption, all those things are wonderful doctrines of the church. But all those things are good news because we come into the presence. We are ushered into the presence of our King and God. Redemption, removal of wrath, and salvation from hell are all good news because now in my escape from eternal misery, I have God. I have in my brain, in my heart, in my, in my life, the presence of the supreme glory of God Himself. Everything else is finite compared to the infinite glory of God. That's what He says. To bring us to God. That's the end, folks. That's it. Second Corinthians 5 says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God, making His appeal through us right now to you, implore you on behalf of Christ, folks, listen, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That's why people in Peter's day that were suffering immensely would give their lives because... To live is Christ. To die is gain. So he suffered purposely, unjustly, and intentionally. And we are to follow in his footsteps. That's what Peter said. For Christ also, he's talking about suffering. Our substitute, our example. He was righteous and unjustly punished when he took our sins upon himself. And Peter says, this is Jesus. You're suffering. You're suffering unjustly. Look at Jesus. Right? And let's not forget, as we move on to proclamation, let's not forget, Jesus died unjustly because of your sin, because of my sin. Right? Verse 18b, the proclamation. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight, eight people, were brought safely through water. Now I've got to tell you, there's a lot of nuances with this passage of Scripture. I got tired of reading so much. I got books a mile high. I almost read everything I can get my hands on. I ran out of time. This passage of Scripture comes down to really this question. Who did Jesus make this proclamation to? Who exactly is he, is he preaching to? And when? When did he do it? 
Okay, when did he do it and who did he do it? It says, being put to death in the flesh, made alive, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison. When was that and who is that? Okay, now I'm going to, for the sake of time, give you two main interpretations of that passage, okay? Some say that Jesus Christ went on the cross, died and was buried, and while he was in the grave, he went to this prison that housed evil spirits who did not believe and repent during Noah, which we studied before in Genesis, and preached, and and they were locked up somewhere, and that somehow between the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he proclaimed to these evil spirits. It follows the Apostles' Creed, if you're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day again rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Okay? So that's, that's, that's one way of looking at it. And, and there's different nuances. Some say that when Jesus went to the, you know, died on the cross, he went to the spirits. Some people say they were evil spirits during Noah's day. Some people say they were actually people that died during Noah's day. Some people say they were actually Old Testament saints that Jesus went down to set free. So there's all kind of nuances. But the, the, but the bottom line of this interpretation is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he went to the abode, he went to hell, he went into the grave and, and proclaimed you know, uh, his, his victory over sin. Some of you probably heard that before. You've heard the Apostles' Creed. I, I'm, I'm, going, I don't, I'm not, again, I'm not sure, but I don't, I'm, that's not my interpretation. I've got a couple problems with that. Number one, Jesus said two things on the cross that makes me believe that he died and went to be with his Father. First thing he said is to the thief, this day, today, you shall be with me in paradise. He didn't say, listen, we're going to take a short trip Hold on, it may get hot, but we're going. He didn't do that. This day you shall be with me in paradise, number one. Number two, he told, one of the words he said as well was he told his father, into thy hands, father, I commit my spirit. Kind of releasing himself into the father's care. Again, no sign of going anywhere else. The other thing that I, that I struggle with this passage, holding on to the Apostles' Creed is, if Jesus died and went to the Spirit's in hell, who have no chance of repentance and being saved. It's appointed unto men once to die and then judgment. So it's not down there going, hey, repent, turn from your sin. There, there's, there's, there's heaven, there's hell, there's nothing in between. So if it's appointed unto men once to die and then judgment, he's going down there, he's proclaiming victory, but with no chance of repentance. Sort of like, ah, rub it in your face, how you think you got me, now you don't. You know, it's kind of like, you know, uh, I beat the odds. I, I, you know, why would God have to do that? Why would God want to go down and kind of rub it in the face? I mean, it sounds cool, you know, when they're all like falling down and thinking, oh my word, I thought we had you on the cross. No, you didn't, you know. It's just, he's God. He don't have to do that. He's God. He don't have to, you know. So I, 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 I don't really hold to that. The second main interpretation, which I think is a little more accurate, again, I'm humble about it. It doesn't really matter. I'm not fighting over it. Is what was articulated by St. Augustine and... A couple other theologians, Wayne Grudem is one of them, is that Jesus preached not after they were disobedient, the people were disobedient, but during their disobedience. So what others have viewed this passage to mean that when Noah was building the ark, Christ preached through Noah to unbelievers who were then on the earth then during the ministry of Noah then and they are now prisoners, spiritual prisoners. Okay? You say, well, where'd you get that from? Look at chapter 1, verse 11. 
If you remember this verse, verse 10 actually. So it wasn't Christ who came down and preached while he was building his ark. It was Christ through Noah preaching to the disobedient in that day who are now spiritual uh, beings because they've died. Their body's in the grave. Resurrection hasn't happened yet. And they are in prison awaiting final judgment. Chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he preached, when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. If you remember, what we said was the Old Testament prophets were preaching by the Spirit of Christ about the gospel, pointing to the cross. He was coming, the pointing to the Messiah's work. We preach back, right? We know it already happened. So the Old Testament prophets were preaching, it says here, by the Spirit of Christ. So I take it to mean that Noah's preaching to the disobedient people of that day was really the work of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of Christ preaching in and through Noah. Second Peter says this, Second Peter 2.4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, who is a preacher of righteousness. So, here's Noah, I think over a hundred years building this boat. Y'all better repent. They're like, Noah, you're crazy. You're in the desert. What are you doing? It's going to rain. It's not going to rain. A hundred years. You know, after maybe two, you think you give up. Hundred and something years. People laughing at you. And Noah's just building away with his kids, getting that boat done. And God was calling them and preaching to them to repent, to turn from their sins. So through Noah, to the people who were rejecting uh, the preaching of Noah, are now in prison awaiting final judgment. I think that's what this passage is saying. Okay, in my humble opinion. But here's the main point. Whether he descended, proclaimed victory, or he preached through Noah to the people of that day, repent of your sins, they're now waiting final judgment. Either way, here's the main point I want you to see, okay? If you remember from Genesis, we studied it before, God caused the rain and the flood and destroyed everything that was not in the ark, right? God was patient, his patience had run out against the wickedness and the sinfulness of man. They were murdering each other, raping each other. It was a mess. And God poured forth, after a hundred and something years, judgment and justice to the world. How many people were saved? It says eight. How were they saved? Through the ark. Follow me here, right? And what is very clear for Peter, I think, in this incident, incident is that this salvation in the ark is a picture of our salvation. One commentator writes, The ark passed safely through the flood provides a figure of God's method of saving men out of inevitable judgment. First, God delayed the day of judgment long enough for an ark to be built. Then the souls that went into the ark did not avoid the judgment. Rather, in the ark they were saved through the very water which drowned others and because of it they passed out of the old world into the new. Then they emerged from the ark they were literally, he quotes Second Corinthians, old things have passed away, behold, all things become new. So what he's saying is the waters were the means of judgment and the ark that floated above the water was a means of God's deliverance. And here's the point. I think Peter's trying to make. I think we can be safe on this. I think we can be sure on this. That we are to live our lives by faith, 
proclaiming the gospel in word and deed, and they're going to be people, evil people, people who will not listen to the message. They will revile you. They will hate you. They will persecute you for the message of the gospel. And even though it seems during this persecution, during this hatred of of the gospel, that God's not going to judge them, He will. He's going to allow evil to exist. He's going to allow suffering to exist. His patience is not a sign that He doesn't care about you. That He doesn't love you. That somehow He fell asleep on His rocker chair and He forgot about you. Okay? Peter is reminding them, the recipients of that letter, that just like in the days of Noah, when people were living disobedient, refusing to listen to the gospel, there's nothing new under the sun. It's happening to you right now. And God, I think that that's the point. I think God would say to us that it may seem like evil is winning. It may seem like evil is having victory. It may seem that God doesn't care while I suffer, but He does. And wickedness and sin is not going to go unchecked. The church of Jesus Christ is not going to be destroyed. God is patient with them, but there'll come a time. There will come a time, and Peter assures them, suffer well, suffer well, point to Jesus, love Jesus, love your enemies, but there's going to come a time when God's patience will run out, judgment will come, people will perish because they rejected the gospel and refused to repent. But God's in control. Deliverance will come. Christ will reign and rule. Sins will be vindicated. People will be punished. God is waiting patiently until His Son returns. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before we move on, let me take this opportunity to lovingly, carefully warn you and proclaim the gospel to you. Some of you have been here, you're hearing the message of the gospel over and over. Peter says this in his second letter, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. Nah, he's never going to come back. Now, nah, never going to be judged. But God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach or come to repentance. Listen, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. God's patience, Bible says in Romans, His kindness leads us to repentance. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you need to heed the message of the gospel. Tomorrow may not come. Some of you may not be here. I may not be here. Be here. Turn to Jesus. He's being patient with you. He wants you to repent and yield your life to Him and acknowledge your sin in light of His holiness, placing your faith and your hope and your trust In Christ alone. His patience should lead you to repentance. Don't wait. Don't sit on His patience. There's going to come a day where you will stand before God. I will stand before God. All sin will be paid for. Either you in eternal separation or by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Who are you trusting in today? That's the question. Place your faith in His perfect life, His death on the cross, His resurrection for your salvation today. Don't let that opportunity pass.
Verse 21, salvation. Baptism, he says. Which corresponds to this antitopos, a type of, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is baptism is a type, that's the word, representative, a foreshadow of the escape of judgment that he just talked about with the flood and the Noah and the ark, that, that this, this water baptism is a type of that. And he says, look what he says. I mean, some people take this verse and they think, oh, well, it says baptism now saves you. They missed that part which corresponds to this. And they say, you know, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. But, but, but family, think of the context. Think of the context in the whole Bible. What does Ephesians say? For grace you've been saved through faith. Remember that verse? And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. Not the results of anything you've done. No works on your own. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. So the Bible is clear. Salvation is through faith alone, through Christ alone. Ephesians 2.8. And in, in the media text, verse 21, if all it said was baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, you might have an argument. I guess you need to be saved. But verse 21b is the qualifier. Keep reading. It's not the literal water of baptism. It says, but not the removal of dirt from your body. Not being washed when you're dirty or going in the water and coming out cleaner than you were. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. What saves you is not the water on your body, but an appeal, a pledge to God through the resurrection or the result of the work of Christ's resurrection from the grave. The word pledge is a promise. Uh, it's, it's People used to seal uh, agreements and they would use this word pledge. Um, most commentators believe that when, a, when they had baptisms like we're going to have, the person in the tank would, would, would verbally give their pledge and their, their, they would appeal to God and make a promise to Him uh, at the sense of uh, uh, at their baptism. A pledge to God and a good conscience requires God, uh, excuse me, requires professing faith in God. It requires coming before God and repenting of sin, being forgiven of our sins. Peter already said that in verse 18. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The means of our salvation and the entrance into the presence of God. He says in verse 18, very clear. But believers, and we'll have baptism here in a couple of weeks, the full immersion of baptism under this tank here, believers at baptism can be confident on the basis of the work of the crucified Christ and the risen Lord by the resurrection of the grave that their eternal security has been sealed. And now, because their sins are forgiven, they have a clear conscience before God. Right? I mean, it's the resurrection from the grave, he says in chapter 1, verse 3, that has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And what Peter's saying, it's not the removal, it's not the getting wet. What it is, is, is a clear conscience, a, a conscience that has been, been washed by the blood of Jesus through the resurrection from the grave. And what he's saying is, this, this ceremony that we use, it, it's just a picture like Noah going through the water. It's the same thing, that we go into the water, we stand we are buried in the water. We come up out of water. The picture of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. So salvation is portrayed in baptism. It's a clear picture of our salvation. But it's not the performance through baptism that saves you. That's what he's saying. Who took our judgment? Who died for our sins? Right? So Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection... 
baptism falls and corresponds with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when we, as people of God, go into the water, go down in the water, and come up out of the water, we're pointing and picturing that work of salvation. And the correspondence thing, and I want you to see this, you need to see this, is that when Noah was in the boat, the water was poured out, judgment fell, and yet he himself was spared. Right? Just like Jesus. We come, we take refuge in Jesus. We don't avoid the judgment due to us because of our sin. We're saved through the judgment. God still poured His judgment out, but Jesus took the judgment. So we are entering into the ark of safety in Jesus. That's what He's saying. The correspondence, as Noah went into the ark, we're in Jesus. He died for us. He went to the grave for us. He rose for us, and we are in Him. That's what He's saying. Water baptism is a picture that we are immersed in the safety of the ark, which is Christ. Judgment falls, we are spared through it. He is our substitute. He died for us, and we are spared from judgment. And how is that made possible? I mean, Peter couldn't be any more clear through the resurrection. That's proof. The resurrection is proof positive that we are forgiven of our sins. Now, let's say you've been trying to reach one of your friends this week on the phone. He calls several, several times. Verizon picks up and all you hear is the same message. The number you have dialed has been changed, disconnected, or no longer in service. I hope I got that right. And then after a few days, you see, the, you see your friend in Panera and you say, dude, what's up? I've been trying to call you. I just keep getting the same old message. And, and they're like, ah. they cut off my phone. I owe $400. So I don't have a phone anymore. And you say to your friend, you know what? I got you. Tomorrow morning, I'll go down to Verizon. I'll pay your bill. I'll take care of it. How would you know? How would you know if your bill was actually being paid? How do you know that he was actually going to do what he said he was going to do? You know how you would know? Your phone would ring. It's on. Listen, death isn't natural. It's a part of the curse. It's the penalty for our sins. And by rising from the dead, Jesus proves and assures us that the penalty of death has been paid and that God has accepted the payment of our sins for our sins in full. If the resurrection had not happened, how would you know? You see, it is the power of God. We see it clearly in the resurrection. But it also tells us that Jesus accomplished something. If your friend leaves Panera and your phone never rings, nothing he's done for you. What Peter's saying is this picture of baptism is, is a picture of the truth that we went into the ground, Jesus went into the ground, and he rose from the grave, and our sins have been forgiven, and we have been accepted by the Father. That's what he's saying. And you know, think of the context. What an encouragement it must have been to the people in Asia Minor who were suffering at the hands of Nero to know that it's secure, that the resurrection of Jesus is proof positive that my sins are forgiven, that I have eternal life with Him, that I will rise with Him, that no matter what anyone does to me in this world will not separate me, as Ricky said, from the love of God in Christ. It must have been a huge encouragement. And if that's not enough, he ends this passage with exaltation. 
who, he says, has gone into heaven, that's Jesus, and is at the right hand of God the Father with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Where have we heard that word before? Subjected. Remember, we've been looking at it, chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to the government. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your husband. Now he flips the script. All angels, all authorities, all powers, all of creation is subjected to Christ. To Christ. He is victorious. He is exalted. Kent Hughes, a great commentary. You can get your hands on Kent Hughes' commentary. Great. In the book of Acts, he tells this story, and I thought it was good. He says this in his, in his commentary. He said, The Battle of Waterloo is one of the most famous battles in history. It occurred on the mainland of Europe on June 18, 1815. It pitted the French army, commanded by Napoleon, against the Anglo-German-Dutch forces led by Duke of Wellington and the Prussian forces commanded by General Blucher. He said, this is an interesting story. This is an interesting story about how the news about Waterloo reached England. He said, news was carried first by a ship that sailed from Europe across the English Channel to England's southern coast. Then the news was then relayed from the coast by signal flags to London. When the report was received in London at Winchester Cathedral, the flags atop the cathedral began to spell out Willington, Willington's defeat of Napoleon to the entire city. But when the flags went out, it said, Willington defeated, and then before I could say anything more, a good old-fashioned London fog moved in, and the rest of the message was hidden. He said, based on incomplete information, the citizens of London thought Napoleon had won. That would have been devastating for the people in England. Gloom, he says, filled the nation as the bad news quickly spread everywhere. But when the mist began to lift, the flags high up on Winchester Cathedral completed the news. The flag spelled out this triumphant message. Wellington defeated the enemy. The English fears had been unfounded. Joy immediately replaced the gloom. And all over England, people danced in the streets rejoicing at this great victory over the one of the most dangerous enemies the nations had ever faced. In like manner, he says, in the exaltation of Christ, in His resurrection and ascension, gives us certain hope that our own victory has been secured. The news of the empty tomb should send shockwaves of joy and exaltation in our own spirit because it is proof positive that our sins are forgiven. It is proof positive that Jesus, as He said, is going to prepare a place for us. No matter what suffering, no matter what difficulties and hardships and struggles you may be in right now, Jesus Christ died for sins. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And I will tell you, I love our country, but He is sovereign. Everything and everyone is subjected to Christ. The prophet Daniel said, God is the one who changes times and seasons. God is the one who removes kings and sets up kings. God is the one who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and He knows the light that dwells with Him. He's exalted. 
He's exalted. Philippians 2. Listen to this as the band comes up. Listen to Philippians 2. He says this. And being found in human form, that's Jesus, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. That means super exalted Him. And bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to me. Christ is our substitution. He died for the penalty of sin in our place. Christ is our salvation. He atoned for your sins. Christ is exalted. His resurrection from the grave, His death on the cross, God exalted Him high above all names. And this table here, like baptism, points to the work of Jesus Christ. It represents a picture of that salvation. The bread is the body that was broken as He died for your sins. The cup is the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. When the band's going to play, I'm going to implore you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, turn to Him today. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all disobedient. We've all gone astray and done our own thing. There's no one righteous, no, not one. To die a Christless death means eternal separation and everlasting hell. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust His work on the cross. Yield your life to Him. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. And invite Jesus Christ into your life. And then you can come and and have communion with us. If you're not there, the Bible says that you ought to sit back. This is for the family of God. We're glad you're here. We love you. um, But we certainly don't want to uh, come if you have not made a commitment to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're a follower of Christ today and you've been relying upon and holding on to and and trusting in things of this world and you need to say, "I, I need to let go. I need to give my trial. I need to give my suffering. I need to give my difficulties. I need to take a stand for Jesus, trusting trusting in His substitution, in the, in the proclamation of the Gospel, His salvation for me, His exaltation guarantees that I can have victory as well in the midst of suffering. Band's going to play. We're going to confess. I implore you, come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and trust Him as Lord of your life. Father, just thank You for this time that we can spend together. Father, we thank You for the work of Jesus, our substitution, who died for our sins. Father, thank You that You received His sacrifice as full payment for our sin, dying once for all. Lord, I pray Your Spirit would invite us to come to this table in the presence of Jesus through the work of Your Spirit, releasing our pride and giving up our ways and turning from our sins and trusting in You today. Father, we pray that Your work in our hearts would continue on as we continue to repent and turn to Jesus who is the only means of salvation, who has been exalted to the, to the right hand of the Father. We are safe in His arms. We are safe in His care. We are safe in the ark. Because when judgment would fall, 
It won't fall on us because it already fell on Jesus. Help us to remain humble and help us, Lord, to trust you today. In Jesus' good name, amen.